ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. We often talk about learning from nature, about being inspired by nature. We speak of nature-based solutions. The field of synthetic biology is about all three of those things. It's about using the mechanics of nature to achieve scientific ends. And as you'll hear in this show, there's soaring ambition in the field and also more than a little caution. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. This is Future Tense, and this is scientist Chelsea Heverin from Montana State University. I would describe it as increasing the toolbox for how we can make things. We're at a really exciting time right now in engineering where we're starting to better use biology and biological processes to engineer materials in a different way. So in synthetic biology, we're engineering the microorganism itself. So we're changing its genetic background so they can perform a different function. So imagine giving a microbe a little bit of different genetic instructions so that we can use it as, let's say, a microscale factory to make a compound that's interesting to us or to perform a different function. For example, we take a microorganism that we can control well and we give it instructions to perform biomineralization but we also give it instructions to aggregate with its neighbours in a certain sort of way. We might be able to build more complex structures. And this approach, the synthetic biology approach, has been around in one form or another for some time now. So what is it about the current times that we see an increased emphasis on its potential? I think we're starting to recognize its utility very broadly. So with synthetic biology, we're now making enough progress where we're able to achieve functions that have been highly desirable for some time. So let's say you have microorganisms that have been engineered to produce an antibiotic or engineered to biomineralize or engineered to express a fluorescent compound to light something up when a certain environmental stressor is experienced. Then you have a sensor, right? And so it's more like the technology is advanced to a point where it's really useful and that paired with other supporting resources where you can start to to take on more challenging engineering applications means that we're now at a time where more people are aware of the synthetic biology, if that makes sense. And so towards your question of why now or what's so exciting about now is that I think we have the convergence of a lot of good work happening that supports the engineering applications as well as the synthetic biology that's allowing us to pursue these new directions. And that includes Chelsea Heverin's own work in developing what are called living building materials, including concrete and bricks made with the help of bacteria. Traditional manufacturing of load-bearing materials, so think concrete, steel, etc., has an enormous, enormous carbon footprint. And so it's incumbent upon us to consider alternative methods to increase the sustainability of making those materials or using those materials. Different types of microorganisms employ a, a wide variety of metabolisms so they can grow and thrive. Some of these metabolisms, so it, which can include photosynthesis and can include urea hydrolysis, among others, some of these types of metabolisms change the environment around the microorganism to make it a little bit more alkaline. They can also increase how much bicarbonate is available. And when there's a calcium source, we get the precipitation of calcium carbonate. That's similar to limestone and can be a good strength-bearing material. So in the case of developing bricks, 
using bacteria, the microbes themselves produce the calcium carbonate, and that's a replacement, if you like, for lime in the concrete. Yeah, it's, it's more like a different system, and so we're not working with cement at all in those systems. You're right to call out lime. So if you are going to make cement, you need to take a carbonate source and uh, subject it to very high temperature processing to generate a reactive lime. And that whole process is highly carbon emissive. In this process, if we're working with calcium carbonate as a binder, it, it's not nearly as carbon emissive. And in the case of using photosynthetic microbes, you can actually sequester carbon in this manner. So the bacteria, are they still living in the, uh, in the bricks once the bricks are formed? That's a great question. The answer is at least some of the time and in some contexts. And so my lab and others have been working hard on this topic because to, to meet the sustainability potential of these materials, we need to keep the microorganisms alive, at least for a while. But it's been a, a challenging thing to keep microorganisms alive in materials like cement. They don't stay alive in that kind of harsh environment for very long at all. So a few years ago, when we came out with this first study on this topic, we were very excited that in these calcium carbonate systems, together with sand, photosynthetic microbes were considerably viable a month later. And they have yet other potentially remarkable qualities. If the microorganisms continue to be alive, then they may be able to participate in bridging cracks in the structure through additional calcium carbonate biomineralization. Additionally, if your microbes can do other things, such as let's say they're photosynthetic, as in the microbes we explored in that study, then that could confer additional advantages to you, such as, for example, storing more carbon. So synthetic biology, or engineered biology as it's also known, isn't just a novel approach to building things there are clear potential environmental benefits in adopting the approach. But for all the enthusiasm, the field is still in its nascent phase. Chris Voigt is the head of the Department of Biological Engineering at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The big part that's driving synthetic biology is the synthetic part. So before, it was very difficult technically to manipulate DNA. And then in the last 20 years people started to figure out how you could synthesize any DNA sequence you want. And because DNA is the language by which cells build themselves and are programmed to do whatever you see in the natural world, the ability to build DNA made it possible where we could reprogram them to do what we want them to do. One of the interesting things about being able to engineer biology is that we have so many amazing examples of what biology is capable of doing right around us. We as humans have obtained food from biology, of course, for as long as we've been around. We uh, get building materials still from biology. Wood, for example, is used. So biology has incredible potential and we just haven't yet figured out how to fully use it. Take us through the key areas where you see synthetic biology playing an increasingly important role. Well, one of the places where synthetic biology might have a surprising role is actually in mining. So cells are really good at being able to eat things and to separate things from their environment. And there are certain cells that are able to take metals and be able to drive them from seawater or waste materials and convert it into a form that we can use. In fact, about 10 to 20 percent of the world's copper comes from a biological process. And so people now are re-engineering cells to be able to start look for high-value metals like gold and rare earths 
and all of the various elements that go into what we need in, in modern society. And synthetic biology has incredible potential in human health. So most of the drugs that have been developed in history are dead. They're chemicals that you take as a pill, or they might be molecules like antibodies that you get injected with or vaccines. But what synthetic biology lets you do is actually be able to reprogram a cell. It could be a human cell. It could be a bacterium. And so when you put that cell back into a patient's body, it's not just acting like a single molecule, but it can be a smart device where it finds the problem and fixes it, almost like a nanorobot that's acting like a doctor. Chris Voigt from MIT. Now let's stay with that idea of reprogramming cells for use in medicine and meet Thomas Hartung from Johns Hopkins University, also in the States. For more than a decade, Professor Hartung has been taking human skin cells and reprogramming them into stem cells. And he's then used those cells to create what are called brain organoids, essentially small basic microorgans that contain around 50,000 cells, including functioning neurons. And he and others have now shown that these organoids, even though they're not fully functioning brains, can demonstrate basic functions like memory and continuous learning. That in itself is pretty amazing. But Professor Hartung is now exploring the possibility of what he calls organoid intelligence. The first step, he says, in creating a form of biocomputer, one that's powered by re-engineered human brain cells. The word was coined because we are combining the organoid technology with artificial intelligence, AI. And that's why we are calling it organoid intelligence. It is essentially the attempt to talk to an organoid. In case of the brain, that is cognition, learning, memory. And the idea is that by having artificial intelligence interact with these organoids, we can increasingly have them perform very, very simple forms of learning and memory. And and these are at the moment the type of experiments we're carrying out to show that these systems are also having long-term memory that they did not forget until next day what they learned yesterday, which is at the moment still the case, but that they really can be trained and learn and memorize and get better, possibly also learn how to do the next job even faster. And the marriage, if you like, of artificial intelligence with what you're doing, that's obviously incredibly important then. It is an enormous amount of information which these tiny organs are producing. And to understand them in real time, you need very powerful computational methodologies. And artificial intelligence lends itself to pattern recognition. We really do a type of EEG, an electroencephalogram, as we do in humans. So we record what is happening in these brain organoids. And then trying to understand these patterns, we feedback information. So we are trying to use these type of simple setups to find a measure of quality of learning, how fast is the brain improving on these things. And you're interested in the, well, I suppose the functionalities of these organoids and what can be done because you believe that you can actually develop a new type of computing. Is that correct? Yeah, it's actually the several steps. The first one is really intelligence in a dish or learning in a dish. And this alone is remarkably important because at the moment, 
it is very difficult to understand what happens on the level of a cell of, of molecules when we are learning. Very often we are poking electrodes in macaque brains yeah, to, to find a little bit out about the circuitry. I don't like these experiments. Um, if we had a human system where we can, without ethical problems, intervene, use all our little tricks and goodies to understand and measure in these cells, we can really learn how the brain becomes such an efficient computer. The second step is, that's for me as a pharmacologist and toxicologist important, I would like to understand how this change in disease and, and whether I can possibly improve the situation. So we already know that the cells of the brain organoid show some of the symptoms we see in patients, but it is not yet at a stage where we could test any drug. And then the long-term goal, this is what the engineers are dreaming of, is really to build better computers from what we learn, how the brain does it. We call this neuromorphic architecture or coding. But some also say, why not have a five-kilogram brain organoid in a supercomputer and special functions could be done perhaps better by a brain than by a computer. It will take us many years before we even add the quality of a handheld calculator. And whether we ever can compete with a, with a big computer, we don't know. But our brain is a pretty good computer. It has been calculated that a brain calculates about one exaflop. And actually, this has just been exceeded by a single computer in the world one year ago. The Frontier computer in Kentucky performed at 1.1 exaflops, but this was a 600 square meter installation that cost about $600 million. And this is what we are carrying with 1.4 kilogram on, on our shoulders. Uh, so it is really a remarkably good one. The memory of a human brain has been estimated at 2.5 petabyte. So these are 2,500 part disks of one terabyte, a quite remarkable capacity. And when we learn a few new words in Italian, let's say, um, I don't have to rerun my program of Italian. I can just edit. We call this progressive learning, something which is very difficult for computers nowadays. And uh, so this continuously adding new information and integrating it into our knowledge, that's for an example of something we do very well. Now, Thomas Hartung isn't the only one interested in the notion of biocomputing. Over at MIT, it's also been a focus for Chris Voigt and his team. But whereas Professor Hartung is using human cells, Professor Voigt has been experimenting with microbes. So biology does an enormous amount of computing. I mean, in some sense, us having this conversation is a form of computing. Or if you reach out and grab a doorknob, the cells inside your body are performing computing. And it's an incredible amount of potential that's there. So if you look at a couple of grams of bacteria, here would be about a tablespoonful, that has more memory than the entire internet is needed to be stored. It also has more logic gates than millions of Xeon processors. So biology, even just dirt, looks very gunky, but it has incredible computing potential. And a big part of what my lab has done is figured out how we can take circuits that were originally designed for electronics and redesign them for DNA so that the cells run that computing and perform the same function that you would expect a computer to perform. And is the idea that they would eventually or could eventually replace electronics? 
Well, originally we weren't thinking that. So the reason that we were doing this research was not to replace electronics, but to get electronic control over biology. So if I design a circuit that works inside of a cell, that means I can use that circuit to control the cell. And that's why we were doing it. But as we've gotten better and better, we've realized that there are certain functions that biology is just better at computing than electronic circuits. And again, us having this conversation is something that is uh, very easily done by biology, but very difficult for a computer to perform. And so we just have to understand what functions are good for biology and then be able to engineer the DNA to implement the functions that we want rather than what's evolved. And what are the limits or hurdles to overcome? Well, one thing is that the circuits that biology uses are based on interacting molecules instead of electrons. And this leads to new ways that you can have mistakes being made in the computation. You can have errors that propagate. But these are just problems that require engineering solutions and don't really inhibit the potential. I mean, these days we're really building pretty sophisticated functions. Some of the the predecessors of the algorithms that were used to mine Bitcoin, for example, we can reproduce those algorithms in DNA and put that DNA in cells and have cells perform the same function. So it's pretty incredible what you can do. And again, what are the advantages, though, of, of taking that approach? Well, there are two advantages. One is you can control the biology. So Let me give you an example. Let's say I was trying to design a therapeutic cell that was going to enter your body, find a diseased region of your body, and then do something therapeutic at that location. Well, as the cell navigates the body, it has to be able to figure out what it should be doing at different points. It has to be able to think as it's moving through your body. And so if you can put control circuits inside of the cell, it's a way that it can wait until it's under just the right combination of conditions before it, say, declares that a site is a tumor and starts to produce a chemotherapeutic in response. So being able to engineer these circuits gives us the ability to program the cells. Another advantage of being able to have these circuits in cells is that it doesn't require electrical power. So some of these very repetitive electronic functions that you hear about that are being used in the world for finance or banking or Bitcoin mining require enormous amounts of power. And biology has ways where it can get the energy required from computing from other sources that are going to be much greener. So for certain types of circuit functions, it may be both more efficient and more energy efficient to perform the function inside of a cell. You've written about the future of biocomputing being distributed computing, cells working together and sharing information. Is that an issue at the moment? Is that a barrier at the moment, getting them to cooperate, if you like? Getting cells to cooperate is a huge issue right now. I I think it's the future or the next step of synthetic biology. We've gotten very good at being able to program individual cells, but getting those cells to work together, whether it's to grow into a plant or organize amongst themselves remains a challenge. We're fairly limited in how we understand the language by which different cells pass information. But at the end of the day, this is an engineering problem. And we and a lot of groups are figuring out how to really efficiently be able to put together a collection of cells and have them all work together to perform a task. 
Now, as I mentioned right at the beginning of this episode of Future Tense, many scientists and researchers express caution as well as ambition. Among them is Andrew Hansen from the Agricultural Sciences Department at the University of Florida. Like our other guests so far today, he's enthusiastic about what engineered biology could one day achieve. What he's not enthusiastic about is the hype that's starting to see synthetic biology as the solution to almost all of our modern problems. There's quite a lot of overselling going on. The explanation would be a combination of a legitimate, sincere evangelism that goes on in any nascent field and the business opportunities, which are considerable, and uh, a certain lack of reflection on the part of some players as to what will really scale and what really won't. And that's part of the concern that we have, that the traditional engineering way of doing things, and synthetic biology is at root, it's an engineering discipline in biology now, The engineering way of doing things is to do calculations about what's feasible and what's scalable, and that's not the way biologists tend to go about things, and so there's a shortfall there in background of people, leading them to have higher hopes than maybe are justified by the realities. And people in agriculture are an exception here because they're about numbers, but biologists as a whole aren't trained to think in systems terms and in very big picture quantitative terms. So they're not equipped by their backgrounds to see where their solution or their proposed solution would fit in a larger scale of things. I mean, engineers, and I I come from a family of engineers, they have an almost instinctive knowledge of, well, no, that doesn't look right, or that'll never scale. It's instilled by training, really. It's not so much a part of the biology culture. And that issue of scale, as you've pointed out, it's one thing to be able to demonstrate a phenomena in a laboratory. It's another thing, though, to to take that up to scale, to make that practical for industrial application, isn't it? Absolutely. And, And so there's actually two aspects to scale. You've touched on one of them. It's that In microbiological processes, it's one thing to have a strain that performs spectacularly well in a a flask in a lab, wholly different thing to have a strain robust enough to do that in a a huge fermenter that's two stories high. That's one aspect of scale. The other is a more abstract one. It's whether the process that you are working on could have an impact in the market that would warrant the R&D to (laughs) deploying it. And that's particularly true of of the more climate solution-oriented synthetic biology because that's a very active space right now because of the urgency and the, the size of the problems. So many solutions are being mooted, but some of those have, you know, biophysical constraints on them. That means they can never contribute as much as as others. An example? Well, some of the hopes and dreams about sequestering carbon in the soil as a result of engineering plants to perhaps have deeper roots and roots full of more what they call recalcitrant forms of carbon, which will resist microbial degradation. Those are all well and good, but the life of carbon in the soil or carbon of plant origin, which it's all is all of plant origin ultimately, the lifetime in the soil is quite short. And it's also proportional to the amount of carbon that's there. 
So the more you organic carbon you pack into the soil, the higher it tends to drive the rate of its metabolism by microbes. So a very authoritative soil scientist, I, I asked him this question, you know, can you liken it to a bathtub in which the level in the bath is the soil carbon and the taps running is the amount of carbon you're putting into it by your maybe engineered plants, but there's a drain there, which is the CO2 coming out from bacteria in the soil. And yeah, you can push the, the level in the bathtub up a bit, but at the same time, in so doing, you have a head of water that pushes more carbon out at the other end. So soil carbon storage is dynamic, not static. And we don't know enough about the life of different forms of carbon from plants in the soil to know whether they really could be engineered to greatly increase the length of that carbon life. So it's not that it has no potential. It's that there are unknown numbers in there, but numbers that we have enough knowledge of to be pretty sure that it's not a simple one-shot solution. So our watchword should be caution. But as has been stated several times, that's not to say that the benefits of synthetic biology aren't real or significant, particularly, says Andrew Hansen, in his own field of agriculture. Well, a currently active space with some actual products out there is biological nitrogen fixation. The products that are out there are not engineered plants, they're engineered microbes that will associate with plants and supply a certain amount of nitrogen to the crop. Now, it has to be said that the amount that they can supply is only a small fraction of the amount that the crop needs, but it can be economically viable in some circumstances. That's one product that's already out there. Well, there's multiple products, but there's one type of product already out there. An interesting area that we have analysed in a publication is... Certain maize varieties have aerial roots. They're not in the soil. They're coming out of the nodes of the plant above the ground. They have mucilage in them, and in that mucilage dwell nitrogen-fixing bacteria. And you can imagine that a root in the air with nitrogen-fixing bacteria in it, there's a lot less competition for the nitrogen that the bacteria might release than if that root was in the soil, where it can you know, diffuse away and there are other things there that would, would want to benefit from it. So it's a more intimate relationship with the plant. And our estimate was that with you know, relatively minor influence on yield, you could fuel maybe 10% of a maize plant's nitrogen requirements with that kind of biological nitrogen fixation. It's experimental at the moment, or at least not proven in major maize growing areas, put it that way. But it's biologically sensible to try to, to scale it. Synthetic biology is not a new field anymore. I like to think of it as an emerging discipline, but as I you know, quickly approach 50 and have been doing this for 25 years and realizing that, that we are reaching a point of maturity. And it's hard to see really whether you're doing basic biology or working in biotechnology or even looking at fields from outside biology at potential solutions, how you would approach it without the tools that have emerged from the discipline of synthetic biology. By thinking of cells as engineering substrates and developing the tools to be able to access that capacity, 
it's very hard to imagine any manipulation to a biological system that doesn't require synthetic biology at its core. Many of the products that you use currently, whether it's foods that you consume or materials in your car or things that you don't even see that are happening behind the scenes, either building products or remediating the pollution that comes from building products, there are many examples of synthetic biology that are creeping into everyday life. It's just like organic chemistry was in the 20th century, where polymers and organic molecules are now in every aspect of our life. Well, in this century, it's all about synthetic biology. And slowly, we're seeing the products of synthetic biology spread throughout the world. Chris Voigt from MIT. We were also joined today by Florida University's Andrew Hansen, Thomas Hartung at Johns Hopkins, and Chelsea Heverin from Montana State University. My co-producer here at Future Tense is Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time, cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.